to Navigating Change, the education podcast from Tybal Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and I am here once again with Howard Tybal. How are you today, Pete? Doing very well, sir. How are you? Great. We're going to go see Wicked again. I think I've seen it uh, 47 times. We're seeing Wicked. Have you seen Wicked? Who hasn't seen Wicked? It's fantastic. Yeah. So, so I'm proud of you. That's good. Super so, Support the arts, Howard. That's support. what I'm doing. We've got a fantastic conversation today. We're going to talk about the future. We're going to talk about war and revolution. And just get ready before we launch into this uh, into this conversation today. Please head over to TybalInc.com to learn more about our work in education. You can subscribe to the show for free. Just click the blue button right there on the homepage and we'll send you an email each time a new episode is released. Today, we have a very special guest. Brad Allenby is joining our podcast today. As a faculty member at Arizona State University, Dr. Allenby's Teaching and Research Center in Design for Environment, Earth Systems Engineering and Management, Industrial Ecology, Technological Evolution, and the Convergence of Nanotechnology, Biotechnology, Information and Communication Technology, and Cognitive Sciences. His current research investigates ethical and social dimensions of emerging technologies, especially regard to information and communication, transhumanism, all the reasons I watch Orphan Black on sci-fi. He's fantastic, and this week he's going to talk to us about the nature of change in higher ed and the two paths it could take, starting with a metaphor on revolution. Dr. Allenby, welcome to Navigating Change. Thank you very much. I'd like to begin by positioning education as an institution. What kinds of characteristics are going to be critical for the way it evolves in the future? When you do that, I think a couple of things leap out at you. The first is that education is a huge, very inertial system. It is not going to like change. It is going to detest change. So that's the first observation that's going to be important. And the second observation is that education is very medieval. It's Medieval in the way that we still teach, lectures, uh, large classrooms, uh, time-gated system. You spend so much time in the system and then you get promoted almost regardless of your performance in many cases. And it's also medieval in the way it treats people and thus the culture that they adopt. So, for example, a tenured professor is essentially equivalent to a knight. Uh, <laughs> those who wish to be tenured professors, associate professors, are sort of equivalent to squires. I was just going to say, I, you're calling me a squire, sir. <laughs> uh, I am indeed, yes. Now what does that make me? Please, please I don't, don't go me there. to fetch your horse. <laughs> <laughs> just be careful of the back end of the horse. <laughs> um, well, that, that makes you something in the area of surf. Um, I hate to say it. I don't know. But you didn't. You didn't make it, it better. Yeah. <laughs> I think I prefer Squire. So, so what you have is a very uh, medieval system that is very, very big and very resistant to change. Let's push the analogy a little bit. Okay. How do systems like that? manage change. And we have two models here drawing on European history, because I mean, why not? Why uh, not? One is the English model. Now, England had its problems as it was developing into a constitutional monarchy. You had the execution of Charles I, 
you had the two revolutions, you had the Roundheads, you had Oliver Cromwell uh, and the Protectorate, and then you had the Glorious Revolution when James II had the temerity to have a male child, and since this obviously meant England was going to go Catholic, England didn't want to go Catholic, they brought over William and Mary from, from the Netherlands. You had turmoil, but the English system adjusted without major discontinuous revolution. And then, of course, you have the French. Uh, and in France, the Ancien Regime was very strong, very powerful, very resistant to change. And eventually what happened is the pressures built up to the point where you had the French Revolution. Violent, destructive, essentially a problem for Europe for, uh, uh, for 40 years. So the question is, which way is education going to go? Well, and this is the central thesis of our conversation today. And this is, in fact, why Howard came back from Chautauqua uh, in uh, an absolute disarray about how excited in my sur- he was. In my surf outfit, It by was the in way. his surf outfit. <laughs> yeah. Howard, All right. <laughs> Howard, you've, you've got to tell me, why is it that that metaphor uh, connected with you at, at such a deep level? Brad, you gave a lecture on humanist design space, and yes. you were you were you were marrying up and educating the audience about where we are with artificial intelligence and what it is to be human. And then you ended by saying that I'm already irrelevant, referring to yourself. And and yes. there's more we could say about that. But I was so intrigued. We sat down and had coffee, and then you laid out this British and French story. And it occurred to me that as I'm navigating, working with large public, small privates, comp docs, community colleges, everybody's in this conversation right now that are in the system asking, what can we do? And I have this benefit of also being on this uh, Economics Models Task Force in Washington. One of the papers that was written, and I shared this with you, was the president of Dartmouth who said that. Phil Phil Hanlon, and he said it might take a suitable shock from the outside before higher ed leaders become by necessity inventive, but I just can't see it coming from within the system. But if we step back to the whole education model, do we have a problem? And if so, what is the problem? Well, I think there's a I think there's a whole series of interlinked problems. The first is that American education by and large, is fairly successful. Anybody who's ever tried to change an institution can tell you that the last thing you want to try to do is change an institution when it's being successful. You know, look at IBM, right? IBM was a great mainframe company. You could have tried to change them every which way to Sunday when they were selling a lot of mainframes and you would have gotten nowhere because they were successful. They only changed when the bottom fell out of the mainframe market and they had to do it or die. And I think you've got the same issue to a large extent with education, but it's even worse than that. And it's worse in at least a couple of interesting ways. The first is that every element of education, not just the individual institution, but the way that education is structured ties it to other systems that are going to be very hard to change. So, for example, we're talking generally about the junior college, college, 
graduate school level. But that system is constrained heavily by the fact that it has to draw from a K through 12 system that is very structured and is going to be very hard to change. And it feeds into a hiring system that is tied to the current structure of university education. So when a company goes out to hire an engineer, they say, we would like an electrical engineer, which means that what the education system has to produce is something called an electrical engineer, a computer engineer, you know, a doctor, a civil engineer. And so those categories get frozen into the system. Now, if you're dealing with incremental change, you can handle that. You know, you can, you can do more and more AP at the K through 12 uh, level, and that'll feed into a different kind of education. Uh, and then you can hire somebody who's had a better education as a company. But if what you're looking at is the fact that that entire structure is obsolete because of fundamental changes, then you've got a major problem because you can't just change community colleges. You can't just change the college level because they're so constricted by the other levels that they're, they're networked in with. It might have been easy enough to change had it been, you know, 20 years ago, but now that we're kind of flushed into this market of expectations, uh, you know, the job market determines what an electrical engineer is, and now the students expect to become electrical engineers, very less flexible. There's a couple of things that feed into making it even more of a problem than you suggest. One is we, we've switched from education as important to creating good citizens to education as being important so you can get a job. And that, of course, is tied to the fact that uh, education has become a private good rather than a public good. And so as we migrate towards this new reconceptualization of education as a private good, I think what we do is we undermine the model of education that we've created, which has been centered around the idea of, of making everybody a good citizen and providing everybody with a certain base of knowledge. Well, that gets to exactly uh, what I was thinking, too, that we, in fact, have trained uh, the market of education to expect what we're doing uh, in the classroom. Yes, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, one of the reasons that American education has been so powerful is that we have coupled all of these different systems relatively informally. So the K through 12 system varies a lot around the country, but it is generally held to a certain level of performance by the fact that kids and, of course, their parents from all around the country expect to be able to go to a reasonable school. And when they graduate, they expect to be able to do something useful with their lives. The problem is that different parts of the system are breaking down in different ways. So, for example, at the K through 12 level, you have students coming in who are not used to processing information the way we present it at K through 12. And then at the university level, you've got the problem that people are paying substantial amounts of money for what amounts to uh, a socialization program and, and a brand right, because right. they can get the information 
on the internet. How does a faculty member think about themselves if you're just entering the academy, how you're going to remain relevant over the next 20 years? I think it depends on how dramatically you want to phrase it. I mean, if I were if I were starting out on an educational trajectory today, I'd be very, very careful because I think at some point the entire inertial structure is going to collapse. Think about education a little bit differently. Think about education as as human enhancement, which mm. is basically what it is, a human enhancement technology. What's driving a lot of human enhancement around the world? And the answer is competition among uh, cultures, particularly India, China, the United States, the European Union. Everybody is recognizing that trying to deal with the future in a way that is productive is not a slam dunk anymore. If the rate of change is relatively slow, professors are a good source of knowledge because, as you say, they, they give you the received wisdom of the ages. But if your world is going to be fundamentally different from anything that your professor has ever known, your professor is just as liable, to use a term of art, to screw you up as he or she is to help you. I'm sitting in front of, an, uh, uh, of a group of students who are going to be living in a world that essentially is the first chapter of a science fiction novel. One that, one that you have never read. One that I've never read and that they know more about already than I do. Now, it doesn't mean I don't have relevant information, but it probably does mean that the way I am processing information is not going to be the same way that they're going to have to process information in, in their future. Well, that's such an interesting question, because what it really implies is that every class, no matter what sort of domain, uh, every class that you're teaching as an academic is a history class in in that regard. Yes, good. It makes me think that, um, you know, what we're talking about at the individual institutional level is very much, um, uh, you know, we think about risks in terms of, not to, to hang too much on the metaphor, but in terms of the English Revolution. And we are not aware that there is a French Revolution boiling across the institution. Howard, when you're talking to to the people that you're working with, is is this a, a sort of an awareness that you that you glean from from these strategic conversations? That's a really great question because it depends on who I'm talking with. To, to Brad's point that. If it's not broken, if it's working, if they can fill their class, which is one of the measures of and, and their primary source of revenue, the story, we live another day, we live another year. If you think about some of the things that are being worked on in terms of initial research, you're looking at things like chips, which would, would uh, integrate with, with people's mind in such a way that you could begin to upload parts of your cognition. Uh, into the cloud. So what you're what you're looking at is metacognition. Now my question to you as a professor is, what the heck should I be teaching my students so that they can participate in that kind of structure when I have no idea what that kind of structure is going to look like or what kind of cognition it's going to call for? Only 10 or, or 12 years ago, I forget the, the exact uh, publication date, but there was a book by a couple of professors at MIT that identified driving as one of those things where machines would not be able to do it in the foreseeable future because it's just too complex. 
I rest my case, right? Mm-hmm. right. Look at look right. at the way we do education. I mean, online is considered to be a uh, a significant move forward, and there are a lot of faculty that fight that. I mean, this isn't just university presidents that are that are having difficulty moving forward. It's the faculty, and and they're probably a much worse problem because some of them have have tenure, which means they get to clog up innovation for as long as they hang around. But online is is relatively primitive compared to where we need to be today. You know, think about how you would zero base an educational system today. Don't right. don't worry about you know the brain chips and everything. Just say okay. Given the AI I have today, given DeepMind, given the ability of these machines to learn, uh, and the kind of data I can generate from students, how would I zero base a K through university education today? And it would look nothing like what we have. You know, as I listen to you and I think about being an academic or an administrative uh, leader or even a trustee, and I listen to the story that you're unfolding, I'm left with the question, how do I engage in this conversation? As you talk with others about this, do you feel that people are empowered by thinking about this or are they left with, you know what, the problem is bigger than I even realized, I'm just going to focus on what I have control over. I think it's definitely the latter. So, I mean, psychologically, you've got a problem to begin with, right? Because what you're doing is you're telling a lot of good people who have worked hard to become what they are that what they're doing, that is traditional education, is obsolete and maybe even dysfunctional. And, And so just to begin with, Purely from a personal and ethical viewpoint, that's a very problematic thing to have to tell people. But you're not going to inspire them. You know, if you think about, well, but genuine inspiration to say, all right, I want to be part of not just understanding this, but I want to be part of a movement that is going to have the kind of impact that I can have in my lifetime. That's what I care about. That's what I think most people care about. They're, they're starving for feeling connected and feeling re- relevant. I think if you, if you try to do this, certainly in most educational institutions today, the immune reaction is going to kill you. This is just the response. The organization is going to, is going to respond so negatively that you'll never get your change initiated. Absolutely. Now, companies run into that, too. What they do is they set up skunk works. I think that, that one of the ways to think about moving forward would be to find the right kind of partner. One of these companies, for example, you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, that's, that's working hard on AI and say, okay, what we need is we need to work with you to create a system that will from the beginning, embed AI in helping us to create as innovative and creative a student as we can. I love this. This idea of partnering with others who are looking who are looking to make some of these changes. You know, a perfect example is when I was having the conversation with the president at Plymouth State, one of his observations was, because he knows he's ahead of the curve, he knows he's traveling down tracks where they haven't, literally the train's right behind, the tracks are being built. 
And we said, you know, what I'd love to do is I'd like to find other institutions who are thinking about this and find ways of partnering with them so that we can have this as a, a almost like a shared experiment. And I think most people, when they think about relevancy, they don't think about relevancy when they're done with their career. They think about relevancy in the context of their careers. The skunk works concept is still an outlier on most campuses. This idea of we are going to experiment, not because the experiment is the answer, but because we need to learn the discipline of experimentation. Absolutely. And and from that, we're going to be able to then apply it to something. But it's not about application immediately. It's about learning how to think about a problem and then work together to say, now that we understand it more fully, where do we want to go with it? Let me add another dimension to it that I think makes it not just exciting, but uh, extremely relevant for, uh, for the United States and for other countries. And that is that if you, if you understand education as human enhancement, and if you understand that the main players for global hegemony are going to be those countries and those societies that learn how to do technology, including human technology, better than anybody else, then figuring out how to fix education, how to make it work in a future-oriented sense becomes not just a matter of importance to the educational community, but it becomes a serious matter of uh, national security. And I think that whole dimension of the importance of education gets dropped, particularly in the United States, because we keep moving towards this private model, which means that for a lot of people, education is becoming something that you just pass off to a company and forget about instead of understanding how critical it is to your culture. I have one more question for you, and I want, we've been talking about uh, some very big uh, issues, very broad in scope. And my question for you is, is as a faculty member and your role as somebody who teaches others in taking ownership of this discussion day to day, class to class. As a faculty member, how do you take this into your work and, and apply this idea of preparing others for this science fiction novel that you've never read? I tell them. I mean, you know, it's it's really fun to get a class full of students engaged in a discussion about why their education is obsolete. You got to know what you're talking about or they'll kill you, (laughs) right? But if you can get them there, if you can give them case studies of the things that are going to happen to them that they need to think about. So for example, one of the case studies I use is birthing a Neanderthal. It's likely that somewhere during their career, uh, we're going to birth a Neanderthal. Maybe it'll be a chimp surrogate. Maybe it'll be a human surrogate. But what are they going to do? How are they going to think about that? What kind of world are they going to live in where that becomes something they've got to grapple with? Another case study I use is radical life extension. At least some people say it's probable that the first person who's going to live to 150 with a high quality of life has already been born in this country. So you throw that at them and you say, okay, I'm not predicting this, but take this as a scenario. Take this as something that you have to deal with. What are you going to do? What is that going to do to resources? 
What is that going to do to reproductive policy? Yeah. What is that going to do to economics? What is that and, going to do to your job? What you're fundamentally doing is that you're preparing them for how to think in a more adaptable way. Yes. How do we build adaptation thinking into our work? So, for example, when I teach my classes, depending on the class, it's harder with online classes, but depending on the class, I have them read a science fiction novel. And the reason I do that is both because science fiction is a good way to expand the way they think about their world, but more importantly, I legitimize science fiction as an exploration of scenarios. To get to Howard's point, what that does is that forces them to begin to think agilely and adaptively. I could talk about this all day, Pete. Brad, where would people go if they wanted to learn more about your work as a faculty member? For those who have heard this and now think, oh, wow, Brad Allenby is, is now a, a rock star. I'm a rock star fan. I need to go learn more about his work. Where would you send them? That's a good question because I tend to do stuff in real time. They can go on the Internet, and I've got lectures that various people have recorded on the Internet. I have a MOOC, which is not the kind of technology I think that's eventually going to win, but it's out there. Uh, that's through edX. And I have a couple of books that they might find interesting. One of those is The Techno-Human Condition, which is a book I wrote with Dan Sarowitz, uh, which talks about how much is changing around us. It's not specifically about education, but it certainly has implications for the way we think about developing our cognitive capabilities and intellectual capital in a world like this. Fantastic. We'll put all those resources in the show notes on your uh, on your handy podcast player. Folks, just scroll up. You'll see all the links to uh, Brad Allenby and his work. Thank you once again, Brad, for uh, joining us. And on behalf of Howard Teibel and Brad Allenby, I'm Pete Wright. We'll catch you next time on Navigating Change, the education podcast from Tybal Inc.